From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. To what goes up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. I'm Valdana Hayek, a cross asset reporter at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, it finally happened. A Bitcoin exchange traded fund hit the market this week, and the excitement was enough to push the biggest cryptocurrency to a new record high, also causing Valdana to wear her fingertips off with all the writing she had to do about it. But anyway, what does this milestone mean for crypto? And what should we expect next? We'll get into it with the head of business development at a major digital asset exchange who previously spent about two decades in the ETF industry. But first, Vildana, I need to catch up on your vacation last week. Uh, Listeners will be very interested in this because Vildana spent the week in Boca Raton, Florida, and I I believe visited our old pal, Sarah Ponzak, the former co-host of the show. Vildana, I've heard a rumor that Sarah is cruising around Boca in like a white Lexus with cooled seats. Now, we in the Northeast, we have heated seats to, to keep our butts warm. Apparently, Sarah needs cooled seats in Florida. I, I've never heard of such a thing. Is that, is that true? Yeah, it's true. I have no idea where you got this rumor from. I mean, but it's true. And uh, I had never heard of it before. Everybody in Florida, basically like 90 percent of Floridians have white cars because of the heat. And I guess cooling seats are the next, you know, top feature. And did, Sarah has it. Did you get to try out the cooling seat? Did she let you sample it? I didn't. I, actually, this is fun. I sat in her back seat with her doggy. So. Oh, with her doggy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. She has a, a cute little pup. She has an adorable. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> anyway, Vildana, uh, tell us about this guest this week. I'm very excited for this guest. Uh, I think we got a lot to talk about. He's the most perfect guest for this week. I'm so happy he can join us. It's Dave Abner. He's the global head of business development at crypto exchange Gemini. And welcome to the podcast, Dave. Hi, thanks for having me, Vildana. Mike, great to meet you. Well, I want to start off with just a little bit about you and your career. I know you and I have chatted before, but just to give our audience uh, a view of you know your career and what you've done in your life, because you do straddle this ETF and crypto world very, very well. So if you can just give us a sense of some of the work you've done. I actually spent two decades in the ETF world before I came to the crypto world. And what's funny is I actually got into ETFs from closed-end funds. So I was a closed-end fund trader, and I ran the closed-end fund trading business at Bear Stearns in the 90s. And when ETFs came onto the scene in the late 90s, they were funds. They traded on exchange. People didn't really know what else to do with them. So they naturally called the closed-end fund trader first. That was me. And 
that instantly became pretty, you know, maybe not instantly, but slowly became my next venture, right? I realized the difference early between trying to arbitrage closed-end funds and saw how readily available that was in the ETF world. ETF world was growing, although it was very small back then. And I progressed into that. And I I was a trader and I ran Bear Stearns Global ETF business for about uh, eight years. Then I went to BNP Paribas to build an ETF trading business. And then I had an opportunity to switch sides. And I did. I switched. I joined Wisdom Tree Asset Management in 2008, April 1st, 2008, an auspicious date to join any firm because it was like the beginning of the end, really. Um, and I spent 10 years or 11 years building up Wisdom Tree's ETF business. And then at the end of that, the last two years, we were getting into crypto as a firm. And I was getting deeper into it. We ended up launching the first Bitcoin ETP in Sweden in 20, late 2018. And then that was my, my entry into the space. And then when I wanted to go really full, full bore, I joined Gemini about a year ago. So I see a lot, and we'll talk about this. I see a lot of parallels between the growth of the ETF industry and where we are with crypto today. So I'm excited to talk about it. That's when you went full laser eye, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I haven't I haven't adjusted my Twitter feed to be laser eyes. Yet. I'm still on my my uh, my pandemic puppy is my is my picture there. So I haven't modified it yet. <laughs> but Dave, you know, one thing I'm curious about, uh, given uh, all your experience in the business and and Wisdom Tree, obviously specializing in some sort of innovative uh, ETFs, you know, the hedged European equities, that sort of thing. You know, kind of pushing the envelope there in some of the strategies. To me, the big question is, all right, when the, I guess it was the Winklevoss twins who originally sort of floated the idea of a Bitcoin ETF, however many years ago, you know, and back then um, it, it made a lot of sense to want to put it into an ETF because buying and sort of providing the custody of Bitcoin was a lot trickier back then. You know, the famous, the Mt. Gox hack, you know, and, and Bitcoin wallets were, were being compromised left and right. Now we've gotten to the phase where, you know, you're from Gemini, Coinbase, uh, all the other exchanges uh, are available to purchase Bitcoin. You, you can even buy it on Venmo and PayPal. Uh, you can buy it at the Coinstar machines at the supermarket. So my point being, it's just very easy and uh, pre presumably a lot more secure to, to buy and hold uh, Bitcoin than it was years ago. And so I wonder how much demand is uncorked by uh, Bitcoin ETFs. I mean, obviously this one is just a futures ETF, but presumably if we get a spot, you know, uh, ETF as well. Um, how much demand uh, is sort of uncorked by being able to buy it as an ETF now? Or is it, you know, going to cannibalize the demand that's already in place in the traditional places to buy it? And, and the reason I ask is I'm wondering, you know, we've obviously seen this this pop in the price of Bitcoin coinciding with with the launch of this ETF. And I'm wondering how, you know, sustainable that is to sort of be this this new spigot of demand for Bitcoin or or whether we sort of cannibalize demand that's already there. That's a that's a new record for you for length of question, Mike. All right. Yeah, that was like seven seventy that was seven minutes in yeah. one sentence. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's my thing, Dave. <laughs> okay. So I'll just talk for the rest of the podcast. Now try, <laughs> try to pull that all apart and answer it. Um, <laughs> let, let's go back to the beginning for a minute, right? 
the um, we really have to give the Winklevoss twins a lot of credit here. They were so far ahead of the curve with their filing in, in I think it was 2013 when they first filed for Bitcoin ETF that like nobody even really thought that would like they were like, what? What? You know, most of the ETF industry, all of the investment community was like, what? What's a Bitcoin ETF? Nobody knew anything that they what they were even talking about, right? They were denied time and time again uh, from by the SEC, right? Like four or five times they were denied. Now, let's think about that. What were they trying to do, right? They were trying to make Bitcoin investable for people. They kept getting denied with their ETF. And so they actually, what they do, they turned around and they went out and built Gemini. Gemini didn't exist when they first filed. So they said, okay, we think this is going to be a valuable thing for the American public, for the global public. We think this is the future of financial uh, products, and we think this should be accessible. So they went out and they built Gemini, which is like, you know, the most highly regulated, probably the most secure storage facility for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies on the planet today. And it's actually easy to use via the exchange and via the app. And it's it's expanding as a global crypto platform, right? Um, you're you're so the the if I take all of your sort of questions and I boil them down to, do we really need an ETF today? The answer is, in general, for most investors, no. It's really easy to open a Gemini account and get access to cryptocurrencies, or to open it. You know, like you say, use other any of these other venues to get through. But there are, and what I've learned in the industry, there are two things. Um, Money moves really slowly in this industry. People don't change investment products, you know, readily, right? So if you think about, like we talked about the growth of the ETF industry, it's it's 20 years later and they're at $10 trillion. The the last sort of four to six trillion or, you know, the real money moved in the last five to seven years. It took 15 years for people to even think about putting ETFs in their portfolios, right? And using new products, launching, going into new platforms to access cryptocurrencies is hard for a lot of people. So accessing Bitcoin via an ETF is a great sort of gateway for people to get their feet wet and start investing in the cryptocurrency arena. Now, there's a big problem with that, actually, because it took, you know, we're talking about eight years for the SEC to approve a Bitcoin futures ETF. And that's basically like you've got this castle full of cryptocurrencies. They just open the gate, but they actually won't even let you into the rest. You can you can stand at the gate, which is what Bitcoin is. It's the gateway. And but you can't go anywhere else. And, and it's unclear how long it's going to take to see other products. So what I really think is when you talk about is there going to be a new spigot of demand? Yes, I think uh, the door is open for a whole new swath of investors who might not want to go directly to a platform who want to use Bitcoin in a specific account or alongside a portfolio of ETFs. Um, so there is new demand coming. But it's going to be limited because what they're going to do, what they're going to want is broader exposure. So they're going to probably use the ETF and then say, oh, I want more. And then 
pursue other ways to get access to the wider crypto landscape. That's the way I think about it. I'm going to pull on Mike and ask a two-part question. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I get the right to do that because I never do that, Mike. Two, but two two parts that is amateur hour. Parts. Oh, yeah. <laughs> did i, I get hit to like parts, four or five of your parts yeah you got, got yeah. enough yeah you, enough. all right yeah that was great <laughs> but i wanted to ask you a lot of people have called the launch of the futures back dtf fund a watershed moment and then i also have people who call me and say it's not a watershed moment don't call it that so i'm wondering where you would fall in in that description and then the second part is you you were talking about, you know, this opens it up to a whole new base of investors. So I'm wondering who who that base is. Is it, is it for the retail crowd? Are retail investors, do you anticipate, will they be buying the ETF? Okay. Uh, great questions. Two parts I can manage. I'll actually probably remember both. So let's start <laughs> with watershed moment. Um, it is a watershed moment. Uh, this is unique, right? This is U.S. regulators acknowledging Bitcoin and saying, this is an investable asset. We will approve a product and make it available for you, right? Like, you know, we, there have been funds available. They've been, they've been unregulated. They haven't worked like an ETF. This is a fund that looks like a lot of what investors are using in their portfolios today. And that's helpful for them. So, I think it's a watershed moment in that sense, right? I think this is that that acceptance is important because I think it will lead to greater regulation on the industry going forward. It is, and like I said before, it's sort of this is the beginning of an entirely new segment of investable assets. And the new investors, there's absolutely a crop of investors. I don't call them retail. I actually don't like the name retail, right? Direct investors are one thing. It's We should get away from using the term retail, right? Direct investors are already buying Bitcoin in their Robinhood accounts. They're buying it in PayPal. They're buying it on Gemini and Coinbase. Direct investors are not going to be the new investors to Bitcoin because they actually realize they don't need to pay 95 basis points or 200 basis points to own Bitcoin directly. They can do it. Um, the new set of investors, though, is the huge swath of money in advised accounts in the US. Advisors control really most of the money in this country. And they run, generally now, that $10 trillion is ETF portfolios that they are building for investors. And those investors are not going out and selecting their own ETFs. They're generally advisor-led. And advisors who are building those portfolios are now going to incorporate Bitcoin. Many of them are using SMAs and have built procedures already to get to Bitcoin. But for a huge swath of them who really couldn't be bothered or didn't have the time or were waiting for the regulatory approval, this will be a new path for them to say, 5% of our portfolio should be in crypto assets. It's the best performing asset over the last you know, one, three, five, and 10 year periods we need to incorporate a piece of it. So I think there is this new swath of investors that will come in. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. 
But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You know, Dave, with uh, ETFs that hold futures, there's always this issue of the roll, you know, and, and the cost of rolling in the, the fur, uh, futures further out the curve. Um, especially when you look at the, the Bitcoin futures curve, it's in contango, upwardly sloping, meaning the, the prices in the further out months are, are higher than the much higher than the uh, near months. Um, and it even looks like uh, the CTF is going to sort of bump up against its limits on how many futures it can hold at the, uh, you know, the CFTC rules. All this is kind of leading people to worry that that this thing is not going to track uh, at least spot the price of spot Bitcoin as closely as as maybe, uh, you know, it would be hoped. What, what's your thinking on that uh, as far as the sort of the perils of a futures based ETF uh, when it comes to, to tracking the the uh, spot asset price uh, closely? You you um, you 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 led the question with the answer, I think, really. Right. Like those are, you know, futures based ETFs are not new. There are a lot of them trading in the market. We know exactly how they trade. We know how futures work. They do trade at contango. They trade in sometimes in backwardation. There are limits to how many. So quick growth can be can be detrimental potentially to the funds. These are all things that um, come into play when you are trading a futures-based ETF. So if I go, if I put my ETF hat on when we were at an ETF issuer and we were explaining to people, you know, what you should be thinking about when you're buying ETFs, structure mattered, right? For years, BlackRock and all the other issuers were spent, you know, millions of dollars in marketing explaining to investors how structure matters a lot. This is what you need to be aware of, be aware of if it's a futures-based ETF, if it's a physical ETF, these things are incredibly important in understanding what your future potential returns will be. And this is all about, um, you know, it's funny, right? The, the SEC is talking about, they, they went this path focused on investor protections. But what do investors really want? They really want an experience where they can read the label of an ETF. And, and I don't mean the small print on the label because they're never going to read that. They want to read the title and understand what they're buying. And they want to get returns that look like the underlying asset that they're trying to get. So when you buy Bitcoin, if you look at your ETF returns on a Bitcoin futures ETF, they could be potentially very different. And I look at the grayscale funds as a good example of this, right? The only way to access Bitcoin in a fund before the futures ETF in the US has been the grayscale fund. The returns of Bitcoin and the grayscale Bitcoin fund are extremely different. Like, Hundreds of percent different, right? You know, hundreds of basis points different, excuse me, right? So I don't think the returns between a futures based ETF and Bitcoin will be as dramatically different 
but there is the potential for those two things to diverge. And that means there's the potential one day for an investor to look at, think they bought a Bitcoin ETF, look at the price of Bitcoin and its change in performance, and look at their ETF and see two different numbers in the performance. That's the problem, right? That's the whole risk with this. And that's what we try and avoid in, in building good investment products. And look, sometimes you're just subject to the regulatory environment. And this is the best that an investor can get today based on the regulations. But, uh, you know, they could have gone a lot further in my mind. What's the best argument for a physically backed Bitcoin ETF? And if we were to see one, what are the prospects? When potentially might we see one approved by the SEC? The best argument is um, that the, the like all of the all of the underlying mechanics underlying mechanics of custodying bitcoin safely providing you know security and um, execution and clearing those trades everything already works and has been proven to work for a bitcoin etf Gemini is actually the largest provider of infrastructure to Bitcoin ETF providers on a global basis. If you look at our, our nearest neighbor, Canada, we are the infrastructure of all of the Canadian Bitcoin and Ethereum ETFs. So there are, you know, there's a bunch of products up there. They're doing really well. And they've already proven the model that a physical Bitcoin ETF works. So it, it's very clear to me that. I think that's the next step. And you asked about like, when might we see that? Uh, I saw that Grayscale filed to convert to an ETF. I mean, no brainer. That should happen immediately. There's no reason why the SEC shouldn't follow up this approval with a physical Bitcoin ETF approval in the very near future. Um, so, you know, I would hope you might see something by the end of this year. Even We have two months left. Um, but if I were being more conservative, I would say the first quarter 23, uh, 22, excuse me, next year, we would see some approval. Beyond that, I mean, it's just getting ridiculous. There's no reason to not approve this at this point. Dave, I, I think one of the more fascinating innovations of crypto uh, in recent years is, is by the notion of earning some kind of yield on your holdings, you know, whether through uh, lending products or staking, uh, that sort of thing. Yeah, obviously, Coinbase made uh, a lot of headlines with the Wells notice they got from the SEC, uh, basically warning that their their lending product um, potentially could violate securities laws. Um, I also I did a piece looking at just the notion of staking and and, and even in the risk factors that at Coinbase, um, you know, there's not a lot of clarity, uh, according to them, about um, how staking fits into the securities laws as well. I, I know, you know, Gemini offers chances to earn on your holdings through lending and staking. You know, is this a risk to Gemini doing that too? You know, is obviously Coinbase is a public company, so they're bound to get more scrutiny from the SEC. But is, has the thinking at Gemini changed at all about these products, given the, the Coinbase Wells notice? So the, the thinking hasn't changed because we have a different approach to the business in general, right? Gemini takes a very, very conservative stance with regards to regulation and everything we do, we do from a ask first before we move forward, right? We don't, we don't do first and then ask for forgiveness. And we don't sort of, you know, 
come off with a, you know, we, we are trying to be, and we already are this sort of, you know, collaborators with the regulators to bring something to market that works within their eyes, right? So we are, uh, you know, we're a New York trust company regulated by the New York Department of Financial Services, qualified custodian. All of these things are, we are already incredibly highly regulated. And we're very confident that our product has been vetted deeply by our regulators. We, um, and on that note, right, like if you, if you get back to it, we're, we've got more than $4 billion in our earned product. People are, are coming to us every day looking for higher returns, not just on their Bitcoin, but also on their stable coins, right? So Gemini dollar is a stable coin that tracks, that replicates the US dollar, basically. And what's important is you asked, you mentioned the risk, right? The risk factors, and there's not a lot of clarity. It, it, it gets back to just understanding in general what's happening in the financial markets, right? In the crypto asset arena in the cryptocurrency world, it's hard to actually get banking partners, right? So there's a there's a limited funnel on access to dollars and back again to facilitate lending and borrowing. So there's demand and and on top of that, we have what's called pre-funded trading across all of the exchanges. So if you want to trade on Gemini, you need to pre-fund. You need to have money on the exchange to trade. Same thing for every other exchange out there. So if you're a trading firm and you're pursuing trading on a bunch of different exchanges, you need to borrow assets and sit them on the exchanges so that you can have them. This has created incredible yields for both dollars and for cryptocurrencies because there's demand to borrow because the trading firms will use those assets and generate even more money for themselves and then pay back those borrows. I actually think I, we, as long as you're on the major venues, we see the risks of, of doing this as very low. It's a, very, it's a standard business that looks exactly like traditional finance, right? Think stock loan in yeah. traditional financial services. This looks exactly like that, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it's not something that is completely new. It's, it's similar, different words, right? Staking yeah. versus stock loan. But a lot of this is very similar. And I think it's, uh, it's going to be very, it's going to continue to grow in that sense. Because if you think about, we're talking about Bitcoin ETF, sorry, Mike. But, the, you know, you were asking like, what's the best way to hold Bitcoin? Sort of like, do you want to hold the ETF or do you want to hold Bitcoin directly? Well, if you hold Bitcoin directly and you put it in Gemini Earn, you can earn one and a half percent on your Bitcoin holdings with no fee on the holding. Versus if you hold Bitcoin in the futures ETF, you're paying 95 basis points and you're getting no yield on those earnings. So it's, you know, you need to think carefully about structure. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. So Dave, just to wrap it all up, I know at the start of the conversation, you were saying you see a lot of similarities between 
the ETF world and the crypto world. And so I'm hoping you can tell us about those similarities and whether or not uh, it can tell us the growth of the ETF industry can tell us anything about the potential growth of the crypto industry. Yeah, so great question. It's probably one of my favorite questions because I feel like I'm, I'm sort of like back to the future. You know, 10 years ago, we were educating institutions how to implement ETFs into their portfolios, right? And today we're doing the same thing. I'm going out and speaking to the largest institutions on the planet and my team, and we are educating them on how they can start to implement cryptocurrencies into their portfolios, right? And it's, uh, you know, so I wrote the, uh, in 2009, I wrote the ETF, the first edition of the ETF handbook, which was designed to take the details that are happening in the market and present it in a way that institutional managers can understand the markets enough so that they can start to implement ETFs into their portfolios. And I think it was, you know, it's widely used around the industry and by institutional investors when they're building ETF portfolios, like how the mechanics of these products work. We are at the same sort of, that was 2009 when I, when I sort of published that. We're at the same stages, I think, in cryptocurrency land. Like institutions are, you know, I like to say that Gemini actually, we don't need keypads on our phones. Our phones are so busy that we, we actually make no outgoing phone calls, right? People, institutions are calling us on a daily basis, asking for, you know, they're not even ready to implement yet. They're still at the education stage for a lot of this, right? So they, under, they understand Bitcoin very well, but this is a, there's a very broad spectrum of, of cryptocurrencies and there's a lot to learn and they, they need to get up the curve. And we're spending a ton of you know, resources at educating institutions around this business. Well, speaking of educating, Vildana, I think it's time to educate the listeners on some crazy things. But first, I got, Dave, I have to get one thing out of you before we switch to uh, crazy things. Vildana noticed you're wearing a University of Pennsylvania shirt. I believe your daughter goes to Penn? That's right. She's a sophomore. So there's a requirement on this show that if you have any sort of Philadelphia connection, you have to give us your favorite cheesesteak pick in, in the city of brotherly love. So where do you go for your cheesesteaks? There's no question. Abner's cheesesteaks. It's right by the campus. It's the best. No, no, no relation. I take it. No relation. All right. All right. He's not talking his book. That's the set. That's the second Abner's uh, recommendation we've gotten. That's interesting. I, you know, I, I confess I've never tried them. I'm not not in that part of Philly much, but next time I'm definitely going to hit Abner's. Let's take a road trip. Let me know. All right. For sure. (laughs) Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. Now let's hit those crazy things. I'm going to break with tradition. I'm going to go first because I really want to hear Dave's take on my crazy thing. And that was, um, (laughs) get ready, Dave, take some notes. No, this will be an easy question. Uh, at least an easy number of questions packed into this, but on Thursday, uh, real eye-popping move in the price of Bitcoin on Binance's U.S. exchange uh, fell as low as like $8,200, uh, something like an 87% plunge. Only on that one exchange, and Binance uh, eventually came out with a statement and said, well, one of our uh, institutional traders had a bug in one of their algorithms, um, and that's what caused it. Dave, what I'm wondering of you is, 
um, obviously that's a crazy thing to happen. And, you know, there's certain sort of guardrails built into the stock market over years to allow them to, to bust trades that are obviously erroneous or circuit breakers to prevent that, that sort of dramatic plunge out of nowhere. And at the same time, we have seen Coinbase come out with sort of their proposals to regulate the industry, including what they want a self-regulatory and SRO organization created, similar to the stock market where the the sort of the industry polices itself. But I'm wondering how you see the market structure and and where it needs to go. You know, is is this a, a feature or a bug that someone can pick off Bitcoin for $8,200 because of a, a bad algo on, on an exchange? Or do you think something needs to happen, sort of a consolidated tape like we have in the stock market um, where everyone knows the sort of the the real price of Bitcoin? Where, where do you see that sort of market structure issue going, if, if anywhere? Great question. I think uh, it, is a, it is a highlight of a crazy thing this week. Um, but it, it's also something that happens in the U.S. markets quite a bit, actually. So remember, the biggest one that we ever talked about was the flash crash, right? 2010. And that really brought attention to what happens here in a world with algo trading and no stop losses and things like that. And after the, two, after the 2010 flash crash, there was a big backlash. And people, a lot of people came out and said, ETFs are ruining the market. They, they're causing these market anomalies. and in the end, it was decided no, that wasn't that wasn't the case. It was a systems issue that caused the market anomaly, and they worked on fixing the system. There wasn't any real regulation brought into place after that. We've tightened up a few things in terms of trade away rules and things like that, but nothing nothing really sort of no dramatic fix to the market structure. But things systems got better, and and also we education of investors got better. So one of the things that was highlighted in the flash crash was that advisors were using stop losses and stop losses and they were not stop limit stop loss limits so they were stop loss markets so they got triggered and then everything sort of uh, uh, waterfalled down and we moved to a, we moved to a world where advisors don't do that anymore they use stop loss limits often right to protect themselves against that this is the same thing like we've this is this is sort of a, you know, the Binance thing was a fat finger, basically, you know, except there was no finger anymore. It's a computer system that did it. The algo was bad. Um, I, I, I sort of agree. We, um, I think getting to a self-regulated place for the industry, n- nobody wants this to happen. They still will always continue to happen. But I think our market structure is going to look a lot more like traditional market structure over time. And the biggest firms, and especially firms like Gemini, we have protections in place to protect against this, so that you know these these types of things don't happen. But in the crypto space, or and now in the world, right, like it's so easy to build an exchange that these things, it's 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 still very early. What I find fascinating, though, you talk about market structure, right? Think about where we're going. The crypto exchanges they trade twenty four hours every day, seven days a week. When they do, if you think about even upgrading, um, like when we do systems upgrades, when the New York Stock Exchange does a systems upgrade, well, it's great. They close at five o'clock on Friday. They've got 48 hours to fix it before they open again. We do upgrades on the fly on our system, right? So we've had to develop mechanics to be able to upgrade the system just 
exactly as we're running, right? Um, so that's a thing to think about in terms of market structure, right? We have to build towards a world where we're going to be running markets 24-7 all the time. And we're going to have to think about low liquidity periods, depending on you know where the volume is happening, whether it's in Asia or whether it's in the US. These are a lot of things that are coming that we're going to have to think about as we go. Sorry, long answer, short question, maybe. Uh, well, it's fascinating because, as you say, those upgrades, even though they do have time to implement them, when they are turned on, they're they're or they used to be anyway. So often the source of of anomalies and and uh, you know sort of wild moves in the market. So, uh, boy, to to do it on the fly it really makes you you know it makes you worry about that. At least makes me. I worry a lot, Dave. I don't know. No, well, look, I, I should I should uh, I should just um, look doing it on the fly is just the way everything is done right now, right? Amazon doesn't shut down uh, to fix systems, right? Nobody nobody's going to. Be willing to accept that in today's world. And I should talk just a little bit more about the regulation of the market, right? We work very closely with regulators on this. We want our market to look and feel to investors like they are as safe and protected as the markets that they are used to dealing in, right? That's our goal. That's that's Gemini's sort of, that's our blood, right? Like that's what we do. So that's our that's our plan there. Mike, I can't believe your takeaway from that answer wasn't that he, that Dave said that we're going to have 24-7 markets. Yeah, Vildana can't wait for which that. Which is Dave. my, she, my yeah. scariest thing. Yeah. <laughs> Why is that scary? That's amazing. So, think well, of, one of my- Vildana, think about it, right? You're, um, you're a reporter. You're, you're busy reporting all day long. You don't have time to trade your portfolio. You should be, but you should be able to go home and buy and sell stocks in your portfolio. But the problem is every time you get home from work, everything's closed. So you're putting in like orders to buy for the next day or something like that. You should be able to go home on the weekends and update your portfolio with things that are trading in real time. The well, reason it's no, scary we'll, we'll for make me. Her, we'll make her cover the market on the weekends then. <laughs> right. That's the, that's the reason it's scary for me because I would never get to go home. <laughs> but that was one of my craziest things a couple of weeks ago if listeners remember where there is a company that is trying to, to do this. Um, my craziest thing does not ask you to answer a question, Dave. Uh, and uh, I'm actually going out into space with, with mine, kind of, <laughs> which, I, which I've done before um, because it's interesting to me. But there was a great Bloomberg article about Elon Musk potentially becoming the very first trillionaire. And a lot of it, a lot of that, new amassing of money is supposed to be on the back of SpaceX and some of the space, deep space exploration and, and other things that SpaceX likely could be doing in the future. A trillionaire in our lifetime. Who would have ever thought? Right. He's an amazing, amazing guy. I listened to a podcast with him the other day about how he's planning on uh, really thinking. I mean, I, I think he's thinking clearly about colonizing Mars. And I love it. Like, uh, it's so exciting for our children and our grandchildren. Come on, that's going to be amazing. Yeah. That's why I love the space stories. <laughs> that's a good one, Vildana. That's a good one. How about you, Dave? What's the craziest thing you've seen this week? Look, I, I, I think it's the topic of the day, right? A major record was broken this week, right? The fastest ETF launch to get to a billion dollars. This heralds the beginning of the crypto era for ETFs, but even more than that the ability for investors to really 
delve into the crypto markets in in sort of ever new expanding ways. I think it's exciting, really exciting. Yeah, yeah. I well, Dot, I know it's exciting for our own Eric Balchunas here at, at Bloomberg. He got in a big Twitter war with someone about how much, how many inflows he expected into the the Bitcoin ETFs. And I, it's looking like I forget what his number was, but it's look everyone took the under, and it's looking like. He's going to win. He he bet a dinner uh, at the restaurant of choice, which Dave, I I think Eric would probably go for Abner's cheesesteaks. That's he's a Philly guy too. Yeah. I know we've talked about. It. I love Eric. He's a good friend of mine, um, and I think he likes Abner's actually. So he's spoken favorably, and he's on point with his predictions on the ETF market. I don't think there's there's not too many people that that rival Eric in his knowledge of this market today. He's awesome. His pr- yeah. his predictions are really good. Yeah, he's cool. With that. Uh, I think that's all of our time for the week. Dave, really appreciate uh, you joining us this week. Um, historic week, I guess you could say, uh, in the, the wacky history of Bitcoin. And uh, hopefully we can have you back again to, uh, to talk all things crypto. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.